Dawn Cecil never thought her criminology courses would be so popular. She teaches at the University of South Florida. But with the explosion of true crime and classes with names like Orange is the New Black and Women in Prison, she's seen her roster fill up quickly. She's learned students are interested for many reasons. Reasons that sometimes perplex her. Like that time she went on a field trip with some students. I have actually been to death row where Ted Bundy was once held. The reason I remember this is because we saw the electric chair and one of my students said, my hero died in that chair. She's like, what? I must have heard you wrong. What do you mean your hero? And she said, Ted Bundy was executed in that chair. And they all had sat in this chair, which is its own <laughs> gruesome thing. Um, but I was like, you are a criminology <laughs> student. You're studying about justice and you just called Ted Bundy your hero. This was a field trip to Florida State Prison, and part of the tour was seeing the electric chair. The electric chair that executed Ted Bundy, among others. You know, Ted Bundy, the serial killer from the 70s who confessed to killing at least 30 women. And some estimate his victim count is closer to 100. But despite that, people think it's cool to be closer to this man. So they asked the students if they wanted to sit in it, and they all wanted to sit in it. I've actually been twice, and every student sat in it both times. I mean, why? Why are we like this? We can't entirely fault this woman for exalting Ted Bundy for whatever strange reason, because you know what? She's mirroring society. And that is what I want us to explore today. What makes us lionize, obsess, fantasize over murderers? And why are some killers more interesting to us than others? Time and time again, we see media come out. Movies, TV shows, podcasts that are trying to get into the mind of the killer. And oftentimes, in this attempt to understand the person behind the gruesome crimes, we end up downplaying the heinous acts and sympathizing a person who does not deserve our sympathy. Bundy is the most obvious example of this. His trial in the late 70s was the first to be televised nationally, and it was kind of a sensation. Even though he was accused and would later be convicted of bludgeoning and then raping and strangling women, he was described as handsome and charismatic. Assault and murder. Yeah, charming. Well, so when Ted Bundy was on trial in 1979, not only were people watching it on TV, but young women were driving to go to the trial live. That's Alyssa Wilkinson. She's a film critic and senior culture reporter at Vox. And then when we think about someone like Ted Bundy, again, handsome, suave, educated, the judge said that, you know, he would have made a good lawyer <laughs> during the trial. We're seeing a televised trial, and that means that the person who's sort of in the center of the trial becomes a star. And that's even more potent in the early days of televised trials. Ted Bundy was the star. 
Each day, the courtroom is filled with spectators drawn by a fascination with Theodore Bundy himself or by the gruesome details of the crimes, bloodstained pillows, pictures of the murdered co-eds, evidence that the women were sexually abused. What is unusual to see is that many of the onlookers are women, young women, contemporaries of the five Florida State sorority sisters who were assaulted in their beds a year and a half ago. Some saw a man who had terrorized women like them, and it scared them. Every time he turns around, I kind of get that feeling, oh no, you know, he's gonna get me next. Even though they're hearing the gruesome details of these murders, many women were so taken by him that they couldn't believe that he'd really done it. I'm not afraid of him. He just doesn't look like the type to kill somebody. You try to imagine yourself in his place and to see how he's feeling, looking at the pillows with blood stains and everything, and if, if he really did it or not. There were women who were able to distance themselves from his heinous acts and find him, okay, I can't believe I'm even saying this, desirable. They were sometimes dressing up like the stereotype of his victims, which was long hair parted in the middle, wearing hoop earrings, young, beautiful women. That was his typical victim. Yes, there were groupies, serial killer groupies. And keep in mind, these women were saying this after hearing brutal testimony from survivors like Karen Chandler. I had a broken jaw. Um, some of my teeth were knocked out. Um, I had um, broken facial bones. I had a broken arm and a crushed finger. Or her sorority sister, Kathy Kleiner. My jaw was broken in three places. I had um, lacerations on my shoulder and like whiplash on my neck. Any problem with uh, your teeth? Yes, sir. I had, um, my teeth are still loose on the bottom. I have a pin in my jaw. For people watching, there was this mixture of fear and intrigue. Here is a suave white guy murdering promising young white women. And the reason it becomes a media circus is simply because that's not someone that we expect. So much of true crime is defined not so much by the reality of what happened, but our societal expectations of what a person who would do that might be like, or look like. And when they butt up against those stereotypes, we find it surprising, or even impossible. And that's what this episode is all about. Serial killers as sex symbols. Ted Bundy was handsome. Charles Manson was sexy. And Jeffrey Dahmer was cute. And, oh yeah, one minor fact, they murdered people. Why do we glamorize men who commit heinous acts, particularly white, conventionally attractive men? What about all the other killers out there? And what does it say about us that we continue to tell these stories over and over and over again? We're going to get into that and so much more. Stay with us. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and this is Spectacle True Crime.
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In January 2019, Netflix put out a tweet. I've seen a lot of talk about Ted Bundy's alleged hotness and would like to gently remind everyone that there are literally thousands of hot men on the service, almost all of whom are not convicted serial murderers. The reason for the tweet? Well, everyone was talking about the Netflix movie with the extraordinarily long title, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile and how hot Ted Bundy was. I mean, I'm sorry, Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. Alyssa remembers seeing the film's premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. And in the film, of course, he's played by Zac Efron, who's like even more charismatic and handsome and certainly beloved because we know who he is. And so while I was writing about the film, I started to think to myself, this movie seems to really be kind of in love with Ted Bundy, which is an interesting tack <laughs> to take. You know, certainly a lot of other people were in love with Ted Bundy, and that's part of what made him so deadly. I thought I would bring in our lead producer, Joanna Clay, to pick apart this movie a little bit more. Okay, so the Netflix Ted Bundy movie, I had avoided this for so long, and now I think combined with everything else I'm watching, my algorithm is disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally feel you because I have the same worry that my algorithm would just, oh lord, take a turn. But I have to confess... I had a minor interest in the movie already because I am a proud Mark Harmon and CIS Gibbs fan. And Mark Harmon, he played Ted Bundy back in the day. So I had to check out, you know, my current Bay Zac Efron's performance. <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that tees up exactly what I wanted to ask you, um, which is what did you think about them casting Zac Efron as Ted Bundy? You know, it's it's interesting because, unfortunately, the casting does make sense, and I think Netflix 1,000% knew what they were doing. But as, you know, we talked about, Ted Bundy has always had this attraction to sort of follow him, and people have also had this attraction to Zac Efron, even going back to his Disney high school musical days. So it's a little sick and twisted on Netflix's part, but... You know, you have these two extremely handsome, extremely popular men to have them collide in this role makes sense. I was really curious personally about how Zac Efron was talking about the film. Um, and so I decided to look up some clips, some interviews, and it was interesting to hear what he said. Like, I have this one clip we're going to hear where he talks about at first being reluctant about playing Ted Bundy. Once... I found out about him, and uh, it put me off a little more. I was even more scared. And then I talked to the director, Joe Berlinger, and he he told me about uh, his version of the of the film or his idea of the story, which was 
much more of about the psyche of Ted Bundy and told through the perspective of Liz, his longtime girlfriend who knew him the most. Yeah, so in that interview, Zach is saying, you know, he felt compelled to be in the film because it would be from Liz's perspective. Liz Kendall was Ted Bundy's ex-girlfriend. Um, but the film isn't exactly from her perspective. It starts out that way. And, um, you know, it shows the early days of their romance, kind of like this honeymoon phase. Like they meet at a bar when Liz is putting a quarter in a jukebox to like play a song and she drops it and he he comes over and gives her a quarter and it's like this meet cute. This is my last quarter. Better make it a good one. You know, I love that you use the term meet cute because that's totally how it is portrayed in the movie. And it's sort of juxtaposed with Liz, played by Lily Collins, um, and she's talking to him on the opposite side of a wall of glass while he's in prison and she's visiting him. Um, and I think we have a quick clip. Do you remember the night we met? Yeah. I fell in love with you the moment I saw you. So through Liz's eyes, she's a young single mom. Ted is truly a catch. You know, he's warm and she presumes that he's a sensitive, emotional, caring man. Yeah, so they show their first night kind of together as what you presume is kind of like a couple couple. And it's kind of awkward to watch, but they don't they don't have sex, thank God. <laughs> Um, but they just, they show them like falling asleep together, just side by side, fully clothed, like Ted Bundy didn't make a move. Yeah. And the next morning, uh, as they show it in the movie, Liz wakes up and Ted's not there. Her crib is empty with her baby. And it shows a moment of like, she's spooked a little bit because obviously this is a stranger in her home and her child was there, but then she gets up, goes to the kitchen, and he is cooking her and her toddler breakfast. Yeah, we have a clip. Making omelets, found some bacon. You like pancakes? So I guess from what I've read, the film is partially based on Liz Kendall's book. She wrote a book called The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy. So I'm saying, because I'm shady, that it's partially based because as much as Liz is used as a framing device as like a way in and out of stories, we don't really learn anything about Liz in terms of like her motivations, what's going on in her head. I mean, totally. And that is something that was sort of concerning to me. But luckily, we had Alyssa talk to us about this. Take a listen. If you're going to make a story through somebody's eyes, I want to keep seeing the world through their eyes. And yet the film kind of eventually flips over very much to its fascination with Bundy, with his face, with his way of speaking, with his smile, with the kind of lies he could tell and the kind of ingenious ways that he keeps outrunning law enforcement, all of these things. Yeah, so speaking of outrunning law enforcement, um, we have a clip that demonstrates this. So at this point... Ted Bundy is in Salt Lake City. He's going to law school at the University of Utah, and he's dating Liz long distance. Um, she lives in Seattle. And he's driving late at night when he sees those lights on behind him and pulls over. Hi, officer. I think I must be lost. <laughs> you ran two stop signs, son. And so, you know, when he's pulled over, 
by the police. They do find a bunch of just straight up weird shit in his car, like a rope, a mask, and other bizarre and incriminating things. Um, And the cops do end up cuffing him and taking him in. Yeah, and we should say the reason why they took him in um, was there was a composite sketch out for a suspect in a string of murders. And people had apparently called in and said, you know, this guy, this guy looks like Ted Bundy. Oh, my God. So it's like you got this Ted who matches the Ted people called in tips about. And he's got just crazy, weird, strange shit in his trunk. <laughs> exactly. And then he goes back to Seattle where Liz is and just acts like nothing's happened. <laughs> he's just like, hello, hey, who's home? Hello? Hello? But you know Liz knows because, number one, the camera changes focus to a newspaper and his mugshot is on the front page. Like, hello, Ted, I feel like you need to just address this head on. And number two, uh, she slaps him pretty much immediately. Oh, what the f- was that for? How many stop signs did you run? And we see her in this moment before the slap get physically upset. So she's pouring a glass of wine, even though it's a little bit early in the day, but I understand that. Um, But we don't know what exactly is going through her head. Yeah. What the movie's not showing us in this moment is that Liz was one of the people who called the cops and tipped them off. Um, So she'd seen this, you know, sketch floating around and had called in saying it looked like Ted. And she didn't just call the police like one time. She called multiple times. So while we understand that she's very clearly upset with him, in the film, we don't really see what's going on inside, which is, you know, her likely wrestling with the fact that it's very possible her boyfriend killed these women and, you know, what that means for her. That It's so true. And what's interesting is in the film, it doesn't necessarily show us that or it doesn't want the audience member, the viewer, to know all of that background, at least not up front, you know? And it's not until the final, I want to say two-thirds of the film, that we hear Liz's role in his arrest and what she did calling the police when she saw the sketch. You know, she's upset and she's confiding in a friend who is telling her that she needs to absolutely move on from this man. I could be the reason that he's there because everyone's assuming that all these other murders were done by Ted and all I did was call his name in to Seattle because of a sketch that looked kind of like him. And that moment is, I think, the only moment in the film where Liz really articulates what she's thinking and feeling and she actually says that out loud. Totally. And it's unfortunate because it would have been really powerful to get more of Liz. I imagine more than the sketch compelled Liz to call the police. Maybe there were red flags, suspicious behavior. So when she saw the sketch, it all fell into place. But we don't know. Because we don't see or hear about any of that. We don't know how to avoid a guy like Ted Bundy. Because Ted Bundy, in this film, seems like a great guy. I have no idea how people became victims of that kind of psychopathic seduction. And in fact, part of what's scary about Ted Bundy is that he acted like a nice guy. You know, Two things are true. 
he was charismatic and attractive, and he committed horrible, heinous crimes. And in order to tell his story, you have to include both. But in this film, and what we often see in true crime, is this kind of black and white thinking. Someone is either a sociopathic criminal monster or a charismatic, damaged genius. There's not a lot of gray. Maybe the director felt it would be, you know, exploitative to show the crimes. But when you don't, you don't see the real Ted Bundy. You see the Ted Bundy that he himself wanted us to see. And so it's very odd in this movie that we're able to put a distance between us and Ted Bundy of the same kind that people who regarded him as a celebrity or as someone to whom you might send nude pictures and marriage proposals without the like weight of him. And it's the same thing we saw with the trial. Ted Bundy dressed up in a suit, friendly to reporters. The judge saying it was a shame this happened because he would have been a great lawyer. It's all downplaying the monster that he was. One reason I think that a serial killer might end up with a bunch of groupies at a trial is because those groupies, almost by definition, didn't watch the murders happen. But it is important to note, not all criminals have groupies. Why do we stand some serial killers and not others? I know, truly the weirdest question I have ever asked. More on that next. Ted Bundy was surprising to many because he was white, attractive, and educated. He carried himself with confidence, likely because of his privileged status, and because, you know, he is a sociopath. You heard it in the way he talked to reporters. Someone arrested for stuff like this would typically be cuffed head down as they make their way through a crowd, flanked by cops and attorneys. But it's almost like Bundy didn't notice the cuffs on his hands. He held his head high. He talked to reporters like a politician giving a quote between sessions. You're going to represent yourself or you're going to get another attorney? I'm staying with the man I know best right now, and that's me. If Bundy had fit the stereotype we reserve for criminals, it's likely that his trial would not have been televised, or movies and shows wouldn't be made after his death. And people definitely would not be purchasing Bundy-themed bath bombs on Etsy. It's possible we wouldn't even know about Bundy if he were Black and from a marginalized background. The reality is, we as a society decide what details are important, not the other way around. We sympathize with white victims and we criminalize brown and Black people, whether they're the perpetrator or the victim. Take Sandra Bland or Breonna Taylor, who were clear victims but villainized in the media. People weighed whether they deserved to die or not. And we overestimate white men like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer. We think of their potential, of what they would have contributed to society had they not been murderers. And we underestimate black men when their crimes are considered sophisticated or cunning. Take, for example, Samuel Little. Little is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. And he's black. 
And over the course of a year and a half, he confessed to 93 murders. That's more than were committed by Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer combined. Little targeted black women, particularly sex workers and drug addicts. So when they died, the police often ruled their deaths as accidental. Which means they didn't even investigate the murders. They never tried to find answers for the victims or for their families. And for decades, underestimated a man's ability to plot, manipulate, and murder. And Little knew that. He said himself he targeted his victims for that reason. He knew no one would look for them. The FBI noted that Little had somehow skirted charges for violent crimes year after year, in state after state, in places where women disappeared. Samuel Little wasn't this hot white law student like Ted Bundy, or a smooth-talking guy with windswept blonde hair like Jeffrey Dahmer. And, you know, the vast majority of his victims were women of color. And the media and law enforcement has proven time and time again that it's just less interested in telling those stories and finding answers for those families. I think that the stories we're fascinated in are shaped by the media environment that we grow up in. And for a long, long, long time, media has largely been interested in white women who are murdered. There's this belief that white people being killed, especially white people in affluent areas, that's unexpected, that's noteworthy. One great example of this, horrifying but great, is all of the stories and the hubbub around the Central Park Five, which is the five teenage boys, all non-white in the Bronx, who were accused of horrifically kind of raping and murdering a white woman jogger in Central Park. Normally, the identities of suspects under 18 are protected. But in this case, these boys' names were quickly splashed across the news before they were even arraigned. So much for due process. There was so much talk around how this was an example of everything that was wrong in America. And here was this young woman who was very accomplished and she worked for a bank and she was ambitious. And then these boys are, you know, called things like animals and just the most dehumanizing language. And to the point where Donald Trump is taking out a full page ad in the New York Times to say that they should be executed. I mean, I've had newspaper people, in fact, I had some woman the other day stick a microphone in my face from one of the major networks. But don't you have compassion for these young men that raped and beat and mugged and everything else, this wonderful woman? They were wrongfully convicted, and it stood for decades. It's only in recent years that the Central Park Five were exonerated with their convictions overturned. Those are the stories we should hear more of. And, you know, it's not like we don't want the serial killer content. Obviously, there is a demand for it. But can we start doing it in a way that's fresh, that offers a new perspective? In the case of Ted Bundy, could we have a film from the perspective of the women he manipulated? If you really want to make a movie where we don't see the murders and we do want to understand who Ted Bundy was and why he was so kind of uniquely terrifying, then using women's perspectives would make a lot of sense here and also could become a story about how women aren't believed as much as men. 
And it's not just Liz. There's Carol Ann Boone, an old friend who he actually married while she was serving as a character witness. She had his child. Instead of trying to see her side, the movie paints her out to be, you know, kind of nuts. Boning Ted Bundy behind a prison vending machine while a guard looks the other way. We don't see the Ted Bundy who murders people. We don't even see Ted Bundy the shit boyfriend. Either story would be way more useful. In a sense, this is a story of an abuser, right, who's literally gaslighting women, is literally lying to them. Whether it's Liz or Carol Ann or whatever, he's convincing them that what actually is true is not true. And that doesn't have to be a serial killer, right? You could just be in a relationship with a person like that without them going out and murdering people at night. Ted Bundy's story has been told a million times and probably sadly will be told a million more. But at least let's have a conversation and challenge our fascination with these people. At the time of putting this episode together, Joe Berlinger, the director behind both the Netflix film and the documentary on Bundy, came out with something new. Conversations with the killer, the John Wayne Gacy tapes. And shocker, it's number one on Netflix. This is a documentary, so I'm somewhat relieved I won't have to experience a Zac Efron-like casting situation. But I'm curious to see, given this dialogue, how I will even feel watching it. I mean, if I can watch it. Next time on Spectacle, we'll dive deeper into televised trials. How the Menendez brothers became true crime celebrities. The glow of innocence once surrounding the Menendez brothers is now shadowed by charges of murder. The tabloids and paparazzi followed their every move. SNL lampooned them. Then can you tell the court who did murder your parents? Our other two brothers, Danny Menendez and Jose Menendez Jr. <laughs> then came O.J. Simpson. We watched live as a fleet of cop cars chased him in his white Bronco down the 405 freeway. It is a pursuit, and unfortunately it has a lot of uh, mitigating circumstances because of the, uh, the high profile of the uh, 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 proposed suspect that's inside the vehicle, which could possibly be and uh, appears to be at this time O.J. Simpson. His trial became a spectator sport. We were glued to our televisions. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. With the dawn of the TV trial, so came the armchair prosecutor. Innocent until proven guilty? Maybe for the jury. But when millions of people at home are taking in the witnesses, the evidence, and what they believe to be the facts of the case, they can't help but take aside from the junk. Right? And the ramifications of that? Well, you will not want to miss it. That's next time on Spectacle. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. 
Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design by Hans Dale Shee. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Catherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.